0: You are listening to Everyday Evidence presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today
1: we are joined by Amy Pillar. Amy is a pediatric occupational therapist, the owner of Pillar Child Development and is currently serving as the Chair of the Sensory Integration and Processing Special Interest Section at the American Occupational Therapy Association. Amy, you have advanced training in sensory integration, feeding therapy, neurodevelopmental treatment, assistive technology, and team treatment for children with autism. We're very excited to have an expert pediatric therapist and evidence-based champion on our show today. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: To start off, Amy, can you tell us about your practice and what motivated you to open your own clinics?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, so when I graduated from OT school, I've always wanted to do pediatrics. I started off in the schools and I spent some time in the nursing homes and then uh, opportunity just with family moved out to Arizona. And I found that things were a little different in Arizona than what I was used to. Great places, but not a lot of clinical sites for therapy. So I enjoyed my time out here and uh, enjoyed working in the places that I did. And then I got married and moved to a different area of the city, far away from where my job was. And there wasn't any pediatric clinics in the area. So an opportunity presented itself just to take a chance and sublease some space from a speech therapist and to open my own clinic. So I just decided to take that opportunity. I wouldn't, people ask me often did you always want to open your own clinic? And I was like, well, you know, I considered it, but it wasn't really something that I had always planned on doing. But when the opportunity presented itself, that's when I opened my own clinic. So it started with just myself. And I had four clients my first week. And then we've been, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary in 2020. And we have three locations. I have almost 60 therapists working for me. And uh, I think we service about 450 kids a day. So it's pretty busy and we've grown pretty fast. Our practice is interprofessional. I have occupational and speech therapists on staff and interdisciplinary practice is very important to us as well as from the standpoint of occupational therapy. We service clients of all ages from birth up into their teens. Um, We do specialize in sensory integration. So we definitely see a lot of kids that have sensory processing needs, but we service many other clients as well. So we try to meet all clients where they are and service as many kids as possible.
1: That's awesome! It, it sounds like such a great company, and I'm happy that that it's grown so much in the past uh, ten years for you. Um, and congrats on the ten year anniversary! I, I wasn't aware that's a that's a big celebration.
0: Yeah, thank you. It was an interesting celebration in the middle of the pandemic, but we we still found ways to celebrate. So
1: <laughs> that's good. That's good. Using your OT problem solving to still yeah. celebrate, I like that. Amy, what additional skills or knowledge helped you to start and grow such a successful business?
0: I I would say the one thing that's most important to me when I think about being a clinic owner and an OT practitioner is that they really are two different skill sets. So I always relate to that I wear two different hats. I have my occupational therapist hat, which is very different than my business hat. So. It's an important distinction. I think in occupational therapy, our goals are really to help people be successful in whatever they can do, whatever they want to do, whatever their desires and what brings them joy. And it's great. It's very client-centered and focused on the needs of the patient. But being a business owner is very different. So I wear two different hats and I take one hat off and put my other hat on uh, to be a business person. You have to look at things differently you know, as an occupational therapist, we're a little altruistic, I think, and we'd probably service everybody that whether we got paid or not, but the landlord likes to get paid. And so do my therapists. So I have to balance that um, business side with the needs of the clients and and remembering that if I don't keep the business afloat and successful, then I actually can't service clients. So our goal is always the client first and at the company is always patients first But also knowing that business, my business set of skills is very different than my occupational therapist set of skills.
1: It it sounds like a a tough game to play balancing and and kind of compartmentalizing uh, which which hat you're wearing and which skill set you're using, but also sounds like a lot of overlap. So thank you for sharing that. You know, here we are very evidence-focused, and I want to ask you, Amy, how have you incorporated research and evidence into your organization?
0: Yeah, so evidence is clearly very important to us as as a company and me as a practitioner, and I um, pursued my PhD and did not intend to join academia, but to remain in practice as a PhD in practice, which because of value evidence and research and practice. And I think that's a really important component when we have a profession like occupational therapy that's an applied science where we have to really tailor and modify what the science tells us to meet the needs of our clients. So here at the the clinic, we are always very much about gathering new evidence. And sometimes it's just little things like when the new clinical practice guidelines come out Those are things that we review as a team. So then we make sure everybody is on the same page and we know what the practice guidelines say. That's just something very small that any therapist or any therapy company can do. It's just taking the time and being intentional about reading those things that are put out for us in evidence. I also, am just always kind of like keeping my eye on what's new evidence, doing little searches. And then we share that with the team. So just last week I came across a great article about language development and vestibular processing. So it's a great interprofessional article and shared that with the team. And then those who want to know more about it, uh, ask for more information. And then those, the rest of them still get a little tidbit of evidence that they can pl- apply to their practice. So that's very important to us. And then on the other side, I really feel that occupational therapists should be not only good, good consumers of evidence, but also contributors to evidence. So we also do research in practice. And I think we do some Formal research and some informal research. Sometimes our research is something that it will be like it is publishable and um, it's a nice study. And sometimes our research is just something where it's like we're looking at our own internal outcomes and how are things looking in our clinic, which is, I mean, parents want to know that, know those information, our referral providers want to know that information. So Even though it's not always something that might be published, uh, it's still good information and research that we should be doing. We should be looking at our own practice, defining our own practice and seeing if it is effective and what our goals are.
1: Absolutely. I, I love how you're able to emphasize and encourage evidence in a number of different ways within your organization. And I'd I'd like to ask you more about that internal research. What kind of process do you follow to conduct your own internal research uh, within your clinics?
0: Yeah, so there's all kinds of, as as a practitioner, we have a lot of barriers to doing research just because things aren't available as easily to us as they are in maybe like an academic setting. Um, But that's really what we try to do is partner with our universities, our local universities, we do take a lot of students, fieldwork students and capstone students. And so that's always a great bridge into the universities. And believe it or not, most of them are really happy to help you as a practitioner and help us. Um, we get to use their IRB. Um, we often get to use our resources, some of those I just did um, some data analysis last week with SPSS and its I don't have, that's a very expensive program, but the student was helping me and we could use the universities. So that's a nice thing. And the university gets recognized for that too if if it does get published. So those are really easy ways to do that. We do a lot of, I mean, practice-based evidence is important to me because as a practitioner, my goal is always the client first. So I wanna see like, is all this wonderful great research that the profession of occupational therapy has spent years developing and continues to develop. Is it really working when I put it into practice with my clients? So that's, I'd say, our research focus as a company and organization is taking that evidence, using it in practice, and then seeing, does it actually work with in the, when it's not a, nice, clean uh, research setting. So we do a lot of retrospective studies here, which has um, actually been very nice considering many of the new uh, barriers we have to research. And then we are I'm also a big proponent of qualitative research because there's so many things that occupational therapists do that are difficult to capture in a quantitative manner, like participation to me, is not the same as what participation is to you. So, how do I really measure that quantitatively? So, I like to get the qualitative piece as well and and hear that how it has changed people's lives or it impacted their lives from that qualitative standpoint.
1: Absolutely, it sounds sounds like you're attacking this from all angles, which I think is a, an excellent approach. How how would you say you use all these different types of evidence to establish organization protocol and procedures? Both for managing your business, but also for guiding interactions uh, with patients and families.
0: Yeah, and I think that's probably what spurred me on in the first place to really think about how do I become more of an evidence based practitioner? And then, of course, as a business owner, how do I make sure our whole company is evidence based and u- utilizes research? And there's so many so much to know as an occupational therapist. We'll never, we never will learn all of it or know all of it. And I, I tell all my new therapists, I'm like, we practice OT our whole lives, but we never master it. So it's really a beautiful profession to continue to grow. But it's, it can be hard, especially as a newer practitioner or you're coming into a new setting and not knowing all the techniques or even very many techniques. So what we've really tried to do and we continue to do, it's always an ongoing process as we do lots of kind of literature reviews and evidence searches and then we always are looking at what are the therapists doing in practice. So what we tried to do is take that research, examine what we're doing in practice, like how does it actually look in practice and then put it together in kind of like um protocol or guideline for treatment. So that is part of our training process for our therapists as well as resources. So we have kind of training protocols and and training manuals on various interventions that we do. And then we formulate those again, based on a very thorough evidence review and literature review, and then taking a look at what the therapists are doing in practice. So we try try to meld those two together, and then create a guideline um, for how to implement the treatment. And when I talk about that guideline, I, I think of it more of like, a scope and sequence of treatment versus like this is what you should do, so it's really just a it is more of a guideline like these are the things you should be starting with first, these are the things that you would do next after those are taken care of and and so on, so it's really more of a scope and sequence of the intervention
1: i I love that process and how you define a guideline uh in that you're helping and enabling practitioners to be evidence-based and evidence-informed, but also leaving room for them to use their own clinical reasoning and their own skill set as practitioners to apply interventions and treatments to the needs of their patients.
0: Yeah, it's so important. I mean, each patient is so different and therapists have different philosophies and styles too. So that's really important. And that's, you know, the art of practice, which we talk about the art of practice, but it's not really, it's so hard to define, but it is something that's important because each client has different needs and sometimes it's just a different approach. So, but having that underlying evidence-based guideline, I think is really important. And then allowing the therapist to use their philosophy and their art um, to, to practice.
1: I love that metaphor. And, and the way I kind of think about it is using evidence to kind of establish the the borders of your canvas. And then using your own skills as a practitioner to really complete the art of, of OT and, and fill that canvas uh, to meet the needs of your patient.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great way to describe it. <laughs>
1: awesome. Thank you. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Amy, can you talk to us about knowledge translation and how that has influenced your career and uh, the development of your organization?
0: Yeah, so I again like knowledge translation is a big, big reason why I decided to pursue my PhD in the first place, and I know I talked about that before, but I always thought like, boy, you know, there's so much research, and then you know, practitioners are doing this, and we're just so focused on our clients. And I'm like, wonderful, you know, I'm doing this interventions, I try to find evidence for them, maybe I don't. And then, you know, a couple of years later, out comes the evidence. All right, good, finally, I'm doing what I should be doing, right? So it's, uh, there's lots of gaps, we know that between uh, research and implementation into practice. And we also know that a lot of times there are new innovative treatments are coming from practice. And those are the ideas that researchers will take and say, hey, we should study this. So it's really this two way street that I Felt in our profession was not always it was not always good communication between two sides. So that's my goal, I think, in in practice, and I guess that's my long term goals as a uh, in the profession of occupational therapy is to help that knowledge translation. Though you know these these research studies are fantastic. I'm so thankful for the amount of evidence that we have, and the more that's coming out every day on what we're doing as OTs but again how does how do i even begin to apply that in practice and i find that many of the therapists and newer therapists and even more seasoned, seasoned therapists are don't know how to translate what they see in a study into practice and so you know i've talked about a few things on how we utilize that to develop guidelines and that really is our knowledge translation process so that taking of research and evidence and what the therapist is doing is how i help my therapist actually use the research and practice. So it it's a little bit, I think, easier for them to apply research to practice and, some, and also make them very aware that they're doing it. Sometimes therapists are very evidence-based, but they're not able to articulate that or they don't necessarily know how to articulate that. So these kind of guidelines that we've put out have those Ways, you know, how how do I document that? Where's my citations? Should I need those? And then also saying like, hey, when this happens, because that wasn't part of the research study, when this happens, this is what I do, or this is what you should consider. And how do you make those decisions within practice? And then also, like, how do you evaluate the response of the client, and then what change do you make to that? So a lot of times when I'm applying an evidence-based intervention as a practitioner, I have to watch the response of the client, and then I have to make a change, right? That's kind of our clinical reasoning or professional reasoning process. And so those pieces are not usually clearly defined in the research study. So I try to help the help those pieces of a therapist and thinking about how do I modify that evidence based upon what the client's telling me.
1: Absolutely. Those sound like some purposeful and intentional ways to improve knowledge translation within your clinics. In what other ways do you encourage day-to-day implementation of evidence in the practice of your practitioners?
0: Yeah, for us it's is, as a company it's very it's part of our culture. So, I have done my best to create this culture of evidence-based practice by one, giving them access to resources, uh, and not just publishing resources, books, journal articles. Um, we do evidence shares. I talk of evidence based so that's very important to us. Any decision I make as a as a practitioner or a clinical director is always based in evidence. If therapists want to request something, they have to bring me evidence about that. So it's just creating this very big culture of evidence, and we also are very focused on our training. So each week we have a departmental meeting, an OT departmental meeting, and that meeting is focused on reviewing evidence and how to implement evidence. So it's very training focused. It's very intervention focused, but it is always based in presenting the evidence first. And then how do we actually do this in practice? And that's a weekly meeting that our, my therapists are paid for. So from a company standpoint, We feel that valuable to put our time and resources into that training, which then, again, shows how important it is to us as a company. I think most places that I've heard don't give you an hour a week to sit and collaborate on intervention choices and evidence. But that has shown how important that is to the company, and therefore the therapist really find that to be important as well and um, take that and know that, hey, we're only doing things that are evidence-based here. And we believe that sometimes those that are not, maybe I don't have formal research on, like then we're going to gather evidence on that. So that's a just the culture of the company.
1: I, I love how you've been able to establish a culture like that and include everyone. I think a, a community is so important in improving the application of evidence to practice and bouncing ideas off of each other and identifying areas that you want to find more research in. Um, I know me personally, it can be really difficult to look at a research article, no matter how well it was conducted and published, but to come up with practical ideas of how it can be implemented in the practice and how it can change my approach to interventions with patients. So I love that you're using community to kind of solve some of those problems and answer some of those questions.
0: Yes, that's very important. And I think a lot of practitioners think about that as they'll read a research study and I just don't really know what to do with this. Okay, that's great information or... Um, The study is so like, okay, I'm kind of doing that intervention, but not quite. And so it, it is important because we can engage in discussions with each other. We can problem solve together. We can talk about the pieces that are more applicable to our setting. And then we can say, hey, these are things that we have to kind of fill in the gaps with theory or other resources we have. And then we need to be gathering our own evidence on that to see if it's effective. So that's, again, kind of how we just promote that culture of of if it's not evidence-based, it's not skilled, and we shouldn't be doing it.
1: Awesome. Amy, you wrote an Evidence Perk article for the March edition of OT Practice. Can you talk to us about that article and how you changed the way your clinic addresses gravitational insecurity?
0: Yeah. So that was one of those um, studies that we did where we Did a nice thorough literature review, myself and one of my therapists worked on that one together. And so we did a very thorough literature review, and then we also took a look at what the therapists were doing in practice and how they were currently addressing gravitational insecurity. And then we saw where the overlaps were. We melded that with um, sensory integration theory and that became our intervention. So it was great. A couple of great things that came out of it was what the therapists were doing really matched what was in the literature. So I love that when those overlap, that means that if I'm looking at outcomes of, are we an evidence-based clinic and I see things like that and I see that they overlap, then I say, yay, we're doing it right. Or we're doing it as evidence-based. So that's always a nice thing to see. But then also it it does help you to know like, what does it really look like in practice? And then we we kind of always, I'm match that with like the underlying theory like is it still true to whatever underlying theory we might be using at that time. So that's how we developed. That's how we kind of took that and looked at our interventions. And then from there, we created um, Sam. She was the one who worked on it with me. She she created a video, a training video that showed the therapist how to implement the intervention and really showed the techniques. And so that became part of like our normal training process. So and then we also do to try to check on that fidelity of of intervention and did they understand the intervention, the new therapists are assigned a a mentor. And so the mentor does like at least three checks on them. And we fill out kind of a form to see if they're implementing the intervention and with fidelity. So, and then if not, we use that as a chance to mentor them and teach them. So as a result of doing that training video and implementing that training program, Our therapists all have reported that they feel much more confident in treating gravitational insecurity, that they are seeing results much quicker. Uh, Even our kind of more quantitative data is showing better um, results on that too. And of course, our parents are very happy with the results as well. So we like to have all of that confident therapists and patients making progress and families that are happy.
1: Absolutely. I I couldn't think of better outcomes than, than those. Amy, what what are some of those most uh, impactful interventions to treat gravitational insecurity?
0: I mean, we we focus a lot on the adaptive response, and as true to SI theory, and and really trying to incorporate that the body, the brain, and body know where it is in space. So there's lots of very much the proprioceptive and vestibular pieces, but also that processing of movement through space so that I can actually understand where my body is while I'm moving through space. So, you know, we're using our enhanced sensory input and then doing very playful kind of crashing and falling and changes in head positions from initiation of the client standpoint. So I think that's a big piece that was important in the study that we, are the looking back that we found was that if that client can initiate that piece versus always being a therapist initiated, um, we find that we have better results.
1: Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Can you share a clinical example or story of how incorporating evidence into your practice or the practice of a therapist at Pillar Child Development has led to a positive outcome?
0: Ooh, I think I can think of many, but I'll have to try to create one. Um, so a fun one, I think we just are kind of working on phase two of and looking back is when we look, uh, I have a therapist and myself, we, she was very interested in like, had a lot of kids with tactile defensiveness, and like, how do we really, seems to be like, there's lots of different methods that we can utilize, and how do we really make the most impact based on what the evidence says. And so again, we started off and, and looked at our literature and then really looking at what the therapists were doing. And at first we found that there was a lot of variances in what the therapists were doing to treat um, tactile defensiveness. Even though many of them were found in the literature, it was a lot of variance between therapists. So we realized that that was something we probably needed to create one of those kind of treatment guidelines on. And so we did um, the same process that we always do, looked at the literature, combined that, and then created kind of a treatment guideline. And now we're now we're going back retrospectively and looking to see if the therapists have implemented that uh, intervention in a very with good fidelity. We have a couple of different interventions that we deem to be most effective from our study, and so now we're looking at their retrospective um documentation to see if they're utilizing those interventions and then next, and we'll look at the effectiveness hopefully as well retrospectively so But so far, we're kind of in the middle of it right now, but so far we were seeing that that consistency of treatment is much more present than it was um, before so there's not as much variances in the way the therapists are treating tactile defensiveness so now we're hoping that as a result that we will see good effectiveness too so stand by i guess for results
1: (laughs) yeah we're gonna have to have you on the show again to share with us these results now Yeah, i want to thank you so much for sharing the ways that you're incorporating evidence into your clinics um, and encouraging practitioners to use evidence. How have you seen these processes impact and and improve the, the overall well-being of the patients that are seen at your clinics?
0: I mean, you see big changes. So again, sometimes that's our, I think, it's maybe our, our flaw as practitioners is that we're so focused on the client that we forget sometimes those more quantitative measures. But when, you know, when the, parent comes in and tells you that you know, I rode his bike this weekend and that was like a main goal of theirs when they come in, like I I can't get better effectiveness than that right? So... (laughs) Uh, But that's not not something that's translated necessarily to research, but those are the kind of things that we see. The parents are really just coming. They're reporting to us so many things that their child's doing. We really are looking across our our own practice and seeing that our methods are working within the moment. And then when they're not working, we're problem solving together, which I think is really important. And then our, our referral providers really do see it in our, we can show them a lot in our reports and how our progress reports and then the how the client's making progress and what interventions that we're utilizing and why and the fact I think that our referral sources continue to grow and continue to provide more referrals to us shows us that they see the changes in the kids as well and I have had referral providers um, and physicians tell me that like not always sure exactly what you guys are doing over there, but it's definitely working. (laughs) So when they haven't seen the kid for six months or a year and they're like, it's a different child after coming here, I I think that's pretty impactful.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I failed to mention this earlier, but Amy is calling in from one of her clinics. Uh, So to our listeners, if you hear children or or some treatments going on in the background, that's what it is. You're getting a sneak peek of what goes on at, at the clinics there.
0: Yeah. Never, never completely silent in a pediatric clinic. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I want to shift gears now a little bit, Amy, to talk about your role with the sensory integration and processing special interest section. How does this special interest section further the knowledge of evidence related to the efficacy of sensory integration?
0: Yeah. So the, um, Sensory integration and processing SIS is a great opportunity. I've been so thankful to be asked to be the chairperson and to be the chairperson of that for the next term. I did service a technology coordinator on it previously, and so now it's great to kind of move into this leadership role of the SIS. It's a It's a wonderful organization that really does promote sensory processing, sensory integration, very supportive of practitioners and really looking at efficacy of treatment and how can we promote the efficacy of treatment as well as support therapists to provide treatment that's in adherence with good theory and evidence. And so we've been trying to take a lot of opportunities. I'm pretty new in the position. So we've been trying to take opportunities to really determine what the needs of our members are and how do they feel that they need support in promoting efficacy of intervention and understanding between those of sensory processing and sensory integration and where do they overlap and what are our differences and how do we promote that to other providers and how do we distinguish uh, what we're doing in that interprofessional standpoint as well. So we've been um, doing a lot with community and we have some practice chats coming up um, that will be really focusing on those, which are just little hour-long sessions that we kind of discuss different topics and we invite the members to also discuss different topics. So we're trying to get, we have one coming up in March and then we'll have another one coming up a couple months later. So those are great opportunities to really engage with various therapists and discussion on what problems you're having or great things that you're seeing and then what other areas we want to address to promote that efficacy and the evidence and then we've also been really trying to as a team focus on getting evidence out to practitioners again sometimes that's a pretty big barrier as a practitioner we don't always have access and certainly do not always have time to go look for evidence so we've been trying to share one or two um, good quality articles a month on uh, community so that therapists can just easily read the abstract and then go have the link right to the article. So they can go read more about it if it's something that they think would be applicable to their practice. So those are just a couple of little things that we've been trying to do and hope to do more of.
1: I love that. It sounds like even though they're little things, um, they're good approaches to to improve accessibility of research um, and also include a, a diverse number of of practitioners to be included on it and i know i personally i'm curious amy uh, about your role and responsibilities as the sensory integration and processing sis chairperson what what does that role as a chairperson kind of kind of look like what all are are you responsible for
0: yeah so we kind of as the chairperson i work with the other chair chairs from the other siss and we really have kind of goals and directives that uh, AOTA provides for us so that we can really be that practitioner-centered organization where the purpose of the SIS is, is really to bring members together, to engage members with AOTA, as well as to provide a nice way for members to provide feedback to AOTA and vice versa for AOTA to provide information and direction to practitioners. So it's a really nice way for there to be some overlap and just some communication between the organ our practitioner organization and our actual practitioners many times some of the responsibilities that come down from AOTA that all the SISs are are involved on in, and then there's pieces as well that we take from our members and we bring them to AOTA and we try to develop things. And that's how some of these things have come about, these evidence posts and these practice chats. And some um, we're working on a mentorship program that's hopefully gonna be coming out soon. Those things have all come from practitioner feedback. So it's really nice to try to encourage member engagement. Um, I do work with a team of coordinators on the SIS. So they have different roles and responsibilities. So my responsibility is to make sure that they are supported and that their responsibilities are met they're working on things like the continuing education articles that you see in ot practice are we're responsible for some of those as well as the sis quarterlies as and then other things that come about so one of our projects right now is we're working on advocacy for third-party payer coverage of sensory integration and so things like that that come about that we hear about or aota brings to us or members bring to the sis then those are things that will delineate out into a uh, the organization and the SIS coordinators to, um, hopefully provide us support for the practitioners.
1: Absolutely. I think you've already touched on a lot of the ways that this SIS can help practitioners improve their practice or how else would you say that joining the sensory integration and processing SIS could help practitioners improve their practice?
0: Before I became a member or kind of like I'm really involved in the SIS, I didn't always know like what their role was or what they did. And now I am much more aware of how important they are to allow practitioners really to speak to the organization of AOTA and vice versa. So I think if there, you have ideas or issues or problems that you're encountering in the day to day, that's... What these SISs are set up for to provide a community so we can talk about them together and problem solve them together and support one another. And then if it's something that our organization needs to know about, we can present that to them. So that was... um it's a very valuable resource that sometimes I'm not sure practitioners always know how valuable that is to them. It's a very great way to create and expand your community and learn more about other practitioners across the country. We find that sometimes we have regional issues that we have to deal with, and being able to connect with other people in your region. And then sometimes it's nice to connect with people from other parts of the country as well to support one another and find out what's working in their area that maybe we can also implement in our area. So those are just things that in addition to all these great resources that you have available to you through AOTA and on the website and community and all of that, there's other things that are just it's a great community to be involved in and, and to support your growth as a practitioner.
1: That sounds awesome. And and you mentioned that uh, mentorship type program within uh, the SIS. How will that continue to evolve and to work? And how could practitioners gain mentorship or provide mentorship through the SIS if they're interested in that?
0: Yeah, and I, we're um, just in the early phases of developing that program. And I think our our next practice chat, the topic will be on mentorship because we really want to get some feedback from our members as to what their thoughts are and needs are. And our our real goal in this mentorship program is to provide guidance for newer therapists that are really like, um, you know, sensory integration is definitely something that we all learn about. And we there's sensory processing, we have to know that as entry level practitioners, but it's definitely an advanced area of practice. And so in your first couple of years, it's kind of like, just learning to be an OT, but how do I start to become that advanced practice practitioner in SI? What are the tr- steps that I need to take? What do I need to do early in my career if that's the direction I want to go? And so that's what the mentorship program is really kind of, we think we're, that's the direction we're going to go. Is what are those early steps in my career that I should take um, in order to think about becoming an advanced practitioner in sensory integration? So there's already fantastic and well-established evidence-based training programs for sensory integration. So our goal is to help practitioners prepare for one of those training programs should they want to engage in that advanced area of practice.
1: And if a practitioner finds themselves in an organization or practice without administrative or organizational supports that encourage evidence-informed practice, what would you recommend they do?
0: Well, there's so many things that you have to take responsibility for yourself as a practitioner. And evidence is one of them. So, I, you know, in your own practice, you have to know why you're doing what you're doing. And I, when I teach my students or new therapists that come in, I'm always reminding them if you don't have a reason for what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. And there's no difference no matter what organization you're in. So, if I have a reason for what I'm doing and I can document that reason and I can share that, show the evidence of that then that's what an organization would be looking for. If they want to implement a new program or if you're wanting to phase out a program that's not evidence-based, I have to come to my management staff with information. I can't just come with an idea. I have to come with actual evidence, maybe something I've been trying in my practice, maybe really good literature review. And then I also need to make sure that I explain how this will benefit the company if I'm using evidence-based practice, I should have better outcomes and then I'm going to have more clients and more referral providers. So when, again, when I go all the way back to when we first started and I talk about that business hat and that OT hat, they're not the same. And so when, if your manager is not on board with some things, you have to think about it from the business standpoint, which is how does this impact the company? How can, how will this improve The company, and we know that evidence-based practice improves outcomes. And when I have better outcomes, I have better patient satisfaction, and I have then I have more referral providers, and my patients come back if they need another service. They're going to return to us and not another company. Those are things companies care about. That's what businesses care about. So when you can present it to them as like this is how it's going to help you as a business, and this is the evidence that, that shows that we will be a better practice then you're more likely to get organizational buy-in. I think uh, some therapists go to a management with an idea and it's probably a really great idea, but it's presented in a way that it's... How it benefits them as a therapist, or how it benefits their therapy team, instead of how it benefits the company. And so it's kind of an automatic turnoff sometimes for organizations. So if you can go to them with showing how it's going to benefit the company, you're much more likely to get buy in. And then also going with a plan of implementation. So not just saying, like, here, I noticed a problem, here's the evidence that says that's a problem, and we should be doing this instead, but then how, do, how would I do that? How would I actually, what would it look like to implement that here? And if you can come with those pieces of information, you're going to be taken much more seriously and the organization or your manager is going to think like, hey, maybe more considerate of what your suggestion would be.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for those clear recommendations. I think that can be extremely helpful for, for our listeners. We're coming to the last couple questions now, Amy, what, what resources would you recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about what we've been discussing today?
0: Well, you know, there's so many resources that AOT has available for us. And I just sometimes encourage practitioners to just get on the website and look around, but I love like these evidence perks that are, I think are pretty new. I love those. They're great because they really do show you the process of how do you take evidence and put it in practice, um, so if you haven't read those or any of those, go pull them. They're fantastic. And probably one of my favorite new new pieces of the OT practice. So those are great things to do. I think if you're looking for like how to change your culture or impact um, organizations, take some leadership courses, listen to leadership podcasts, things about influencing people can be very helpful when you're trying to start a new program or change the culture of your department or change the culture of your company. So taking a chance to just focus on leadership uh, is is a good thing to consider as well.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Amy, last question. I call this the golden nugget segment now. If you could say one thing to everyone in the occupational therapy field, what would it be?
0: Uh, I think we have the greatest profession in the world. Uh, occupational therapy has so much to offer so many people. Never sell yourself short as a practitioner. We can influence people's lives in so many different ways, and we get to and we get to influence them in, in many different aspects of you know. We have to consider physical and spiritual and sensory and motor and emotional and social, and that's a really cool thing to do as a as a person but it's also really hard. And that's okay. It should be hard because people are complex and amazing beings. But if you're a new practitioner and it's hard, you're probably doing it right. And so just keep working, working at it. Your clients deserve the best and you really are changing lives, which is not everyone gets to say that. And we get to say that every single day when we come to work that we change somebody's life. So keep it up and just enjoy, enjoy the journey.
1: Thank you so much. That's a wonderful nugget um, and very encouraging as well. Thank you again for your time, Amy. It's been a pleasure conducting this interview with you and it's been great having you on.
0: Well, thanks so much, Matt, for um, asking me on the program. I I enjoyed my time. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. See you next time as we bring occupational therapy research and applications straight to you.